So I had literally all of these creators beating a path to my door because they thought I was an agent, so I must surely have access to some secret pile of jobs. I didn't, but because of my tendency to always sort of go to that support mode, I would literally see anyone who asked. So people would come by, we talk, and over that time, I, I was, without realizing, kind of coaching them. Opportunities always come at a crossroads. Sometimes they're intersections with big flashing lights and signs pointing to what's ahead in either direction. And other times, it's impossible to know where each path goes. Maybe it's hard to see that there is a choice of direction in the first place. But when we can really take notice of all the places we choose to go one direction or another, we can see that there are opportunities all around us, even when they're not the opportunities we were looking for. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses. This month, we've been exploring how to spot opportunities and what to do with them once they're in view. Opportunities are, in effect, choices. And while we don't all have equal access to the same quantity or quality of choices, I think it's valuable to notice when you do have a choice and how often you make a choice without even realizing it. You see, with every new opportunity, with every choice, there's a trade-off. You might have the opportunity to hire someone to help you, but that means you're trading off some amount of control. You might have the opportunity to try out a new marketing channel, but that means you're trading off time and effort you've been putting into another marketing channel. You might have the opportunity to develop a new offer, but that means you're trading off the focus you've put on what you're currently offering. Trading between one option and another isn't a bad thing, of course. It just is. And no matter what we choose or what opportunities we pursue, there's something else we're not choosing or pursuing. That's opportunity cost. If I hire someone for my business and trade off some control, I'm potentially missing out on keeping things simpler and more streamlined. If I pursue a new marketing channel, I'm missing out on the potential growth that continuing to focus on my existing marketing channel could create. And if I develop a new offer, I'm missing out on the potential revenue that doubling down on my current offer could generate. And again, these trade-offs aren't necessarily a bad thing. Opportunity cost exists with every choice on both sides of the crossroads, except that we rarely notice it. When we make a choice or pursue an opportunity without realizing the trade-off, or when we fail to see that we're making a choice at all, we rob ourselves of the chance to truly evaluate the direction we want to take next. We're so eager to consider the benefit of choosing one direction or the other that we rarely stop to weigh what we're giving up, no matter what we choose. This week, my guest is Justine Clay, a business coach for creative entrepreneurs and freelancers. Justine is one of the most thoughtful decision makers I know, and her story proves that taking the time to really weigh your options doesn't mean you'll never take a big leap in a new direction. In fact, during this conversation, you're going to hear about a number of really big opportunities that Justine took advantage of, including moving to the U.S. with her rebound boyfriend, taking a job she had no experience with starting her own business, and then making a big pivot in the midst of the Great Recession. Justine shares how she processes her opportunities and ultimately how she makes the choices she makes. Now, let's find out what works for Justine Clay. 
Justine Clay, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. All right. So I am really looking forward to kind of hearing your story from start to not finish, but to present day um, and all of the changes, all of the evolutions that you've made as a business owner and a coach over the years. Um, So let's go ahead and just start at the very beginning. When and why did you first go into business for yourself? Sure. Um, I'm actually going to backtrack a little bit even before that to when I moved to New York in 1996. Um, because that was, I feel like in my life, there have been these really like pivotal moments that quite often kind of came out of the blue and set me on a completely different path. And I consider like my life in before 1996 and after 1996 terms. So I moved here from London with a guy I had been dating for three months when we moved here. I had never been to the States before. I had never been to New York before. Um, I, I, you know, we literally arrived, arrived with you know, a backpack each and um, that was it. And so I land in this kind of new city. And if anyone who was in New York in 1996 will remember, that's when we had these enormous blizzards when there was like six feet of snow. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And there's me, little English girl in a little thin woolen winter coat because we don't have like puffer jackets or anything. Like we don't need them. Um, we just need umbrellas. And so... I was sort of woefully ill-equipped, really in every capacity. And um, so I sort of fell into the industry that then became my industry, which is working with creative um, uh, entrepreneurs and freelancers. Um, And I landed a job after my, you know, obviously prerequisite stint of waitressing, which of course you have to do if you're going to have a New York story. Um, And then I landed a job for an art director. And so... That was probably the first opportunity I seized where, you know, I didn't know what an art director was at that time. It was before the internet, so I couldn't even, like, Google it. So I pretty much just showed up and was just like, okay, what shall I do? Uh, You know, he said, oh, can you send us fax? I had never sent a fax or used a fax machine. I mean, I was so green around the gills, I almost cringe thinking about it now. But I just saw an opportunity. I'm like, I'm going to learn everything I can. I'm going to be as useful as I can be. Um, and I'm just going to like really make this work. And so I worked with him for a year. And that's where I really kind of got my first glimpse into what small business ownership looks like and all the sort of multitude of hats that people have to wear. And really just doing a lot of things that I had never done before and had to ask for a lot of help on, which was kind of embarrassing. Like, how do I use this fax machine, even though you've hired me to send a fax for you? Now, not only are you sending the fax yourself, you're having to teach someone else how to do it. But so it was this real sort of like baptism of fire in many ways. He was a lovely person. And a year later, I was hired by his agent. So this is 1997. And she was a rep for art directors, copywriters, and fashion illustrators. And anyone who's been in this industry will know that at that time, those people didn't have reps. Like photographers had reps, hair and makeup people had reps, stylists had reps. The other folks didn't. They were kind of left to their own devices. And what was really fascinating about um, that job is that to rep a photographer, you kind of put together the quote and the estimate and all of these things and bill at the end, right, and and take Mm -hmm. care of the talent. With an art director, you have to manage the entire project 
So you have to be able to write the proposal at the beginning of the project. So you have to be able to kind of forecast what that project's going to look like. You really have to really understand the entire creative process and to be able to build that out ahead of time with the client. That's just one of the things, right? So it's actually a very complicated um, endeavor. So I had to, it was a huge learning curve. And the woman I worked for was a real industry veteran and, and kind of scared the pants off me. You know, it was, it, it was not like a soft learning experience, let's say. Um, but I learned so much. And so over those eight years with her, um, I really became her right hand, really her partner in the business and everything, but, um, you know, legal status in, in, in the business. And so I learned everything there. And I had got it was about 2006 at that point. We'd gone through, you know, 2001 after 9/11. We'd gone through all of these really big things. So I'd, I'd really like cut my teeth in a lot of really um, sort of extreme circumstances and really touching every piece of the business. And so 2006 arrives. I had really gone as far as I could go in that business. I'd gone as far as I could in terms of responsibility, in terms of my role, in terms of my pay level. You know, everything was kind of capped out. And so I think it was about 35 or so, and I felt like. This is my window where I feel like I'm still completely terrified of starting my own business and have all of the imposter phenomenon and all that around that. But I feel like I know enough to be able to give this a good college try. And this is my window because I didn't have kids yet. I wasn't married yet. It just felt like this is it. This is, this is the opportunity. I've got to like just seize the day. And so I started my first business, which was a creative management agency called Plum Creative. And so... That's the story of how I kind of like got from being, you know, uh, a sociology um, graduate to being a business owner in New York City representing creative talent in the fashion industry. Got it. So first of all, yes, this, the winter of 96 was terrible, even if you were from here <laughs> and were used to that sort of thing. It was bad. Second, you said that your first kind of opportunity in New York was working uh, for this art director, but it seems like the first opportunity you really seized was actually coming to the States in the first place. And like the decision, I had totally forgotten about the story, by the way. And so I'm so glad you started there. Uh, the decision to make a transoceanic move with someone you'd been dating for three months. Like what was going on? What was happening in your head? How were you thinking through that decision in that moment? I'm so glad that you asked that question because I had also, because it's my story, I kind of forget about these things too. Um, and I should preface this because I always say to people, I'm not this really impulsive person, right? I'm not so much just like, sure, why not? Let's move 3,000 miles away where I have no support network. Um, but again, I was at a crossroads there. I had done um, a four-year degree in sociology and psychology. Um, and I, I was at that crossroads where I had to make a decision, what am I going to do next? I was going to have to do a master's in something, whether it's going to be social work or uh, to move into a therapy kind of um, direction. I was going to have to make a decision. And so again, I went to my, my go-to place, which was working in restaurants and stuff while I figured it out. I'm a big fan of like, let me take a breather and, and think mm -hmm. about what I want to do the next step. The guy who ended up moving here lived above the restaurant I worked in in London. And it was one of those kind of like beautiful, like sort of row houses and one of those really quaint streets in Northeast London. And he was a hairdresser in the fashion industry. So he worked on photo shoots and stuff like that. And he was planning to move um, 
over here in February. So I met him in like the December. Now, the funny thing is we, we had kind of been friends. We were kind of running in a circle. And I had come out of like a really disastrous, like sort of college boyfriend relationship, toxic, blah, blah, blah. And I was just having this nice rebound palette cleanser with this hot hairdresser before he disappears off and does his thing. And so when a month into our relationship, he says, you know what, I really, really like you and I want you to come with me. Again, I just had this moment where I thought, this is an opportunity and it's never going to come back again. You'll never have this opportunity again. There's there's nothing in your own self-motivation that would make you move to New York without questioning yourself out of the decision. And it's here right now. And so I knew at that point, you know, I sort of ask myself questions. I always say, if you want better answers, ask better questions, which includes yourself. And I thought, you know, how would you feel if you didn't take this opportunity? And I knew I would only ever feel regret because the only reason I would have not done it would have been because I was scared. And, and that would be intolerable for me to live with that feeling. So I came here really with my eyes very wide open. And I, and I thought, well, this thing, we've been dating three months. At best, it has a 50-50 chance of success just because we don't have history under our belts. And so my only stipulation with this guy was, um, if we break up, and I can't get home, because I had like no money. I can't get home under my own steam. Will you pay for me to get home? And he said, yes. Now, eight months into being here, he breaks up with me. I'm devastated. I mean, like beyond devastated. And, but you know what? I was too proud. I'm like, I'm not gonna go home yet because I'm not going home because my boyfriend dumped me. And I know that in three months, I'll probably feel at least a bit better. So I'll give it three months. And if I still feel this terrible, then I'll revisit the idea of going home. And then three months later, I felt still pretty terrible, but not quite as terrible. So I was like, okay, I'll give it six months. And 25 years later, I am still here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Still here. Oh, Justine, I love how much of a like optimistic realist you are. Like the, so logical in terms of the decision-making, but also like it takes someone with a, a really special brand of optimism, I think, to make those logical uh, leaps. And it's just, I just love that about you. And I love that about that story. I want to get into the rest of your business in a minute, but this story begs for me a question that I find so challenging to answer, um, but also incredibly intriguing, which is when an opportunity lands in your lap, how do you figure out whether you want to do it because it's just there and it's easy or whether it is the quote unquote right decision mm. to make? And I think that that's so interesting. I think that the way I approach it is... I, I, I do things from a very, you know, I'm a Pisces with a Virgo rising. So I'm very intuitive and creative. And then I'm also very practical and pragmatic. So I think that that, that, that says a lot about how I, I make decisions. And so a lot of it is that feeling. So you'll notice that when I said, you know, when I was thinking, should I go, should I not go? Of course, I was in love. Like, I mean, I was in that first heady stage of love. So of course, everything is saying go, right? Um, but the questions were, how will you feel if you do go? How will you feel if you don't go? And what will be the what will be the ramifications of that down the line? So I think I nearly always start from a feeling place. And then I start to sort of scaffold around it 
what what the realities of what the consequences of those of that choice will be what will i do and so even when i look back now i mean i was 24 and i look back now and i was like even the fact that i had the presence of mind to say to him here's my one stipulation that we have to agree to and it was very practical get me home if i can't get home right and i want to right and 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 so I think I always go with my instincts because they, they always are pretty good. And then I, and then I think it through based upon that. So, you know, I wouldn't have moved here with a guy that was unstable. I wouldn't have moved here if I felt like I was putting myself in any danger to do so. Right. Or in, in any kind of jeopardy. So I think that's how I do it. Okay. I want to, <laughs> I swear we'll get to the rest of it soon. <laughs> but, um, I love that you point out that the first question you ask is how am I going to feel? How would I feel if I didn't take this opportunity and just really feel into the decision? And as someone who uh, doesn't, where feeling doesn't come easily, or I shouldn't say that, as someone who's learned to uh, suppress their feelings <laughs> to get things done, um, I also find it really intriguing what that actually means for people. So when you say, how would I feel? Are you looking for a feeling in your body? Are you looking for an emotional state? Are you? What is it mm. that you're actually and feeling? That's, that's a great <laughs> distinction because I know a lot of people, you know, um, you know, Valerie and Kate from the mastermind, they'll talk about that sort of somatic feeling, right? Like that bodily feeling. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that really is how I interpret my feelings. It's really about, it's, it's an emotional response to something. So for example, the feeling of if I, if I did this and it worked out, I would feel really um, proud and empowered and it would it would it would have proved that I could do something that was really scary to me, right? So empowerment would be the feeling that I would have if I had not gone. Then the feeling would be regret, like mm. wondering what if, disappointment in myself. So I think it's an emotional response rather than a somatic response to things. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. You're going to hear what Justine's first few years of business were like, plus what happened to her business during the Great Recession in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by the What Works Network. The What Works Network is where experienced business owners come together to level up how they run their businesses. Our shared goal is to build businesses that run smoothly, cause fewer headaches, and sustainably make more money. Now, the What Works Network is really different from most of the business support offered online today. It's different because our values are different. First, we take a collaborative, non-dogmatic approach to problem solving and business growth. We're not here to tell you what you should do with your business. In fact, we have a policy against unsolicited advice. Instead, we trade notes on our experiences and observations so everyone benefits from the free flow of information. Second, we work to create the space for an inclusive and holistic conversation about business. Our community offers a diverse set of perspectives, both in personal terms and in business terms. And we work hard to create a place where entrepreneurs can bring their whole selves into the room. 
Finally, our community is driven by the contributions our members make, their questions, their challenges, and their successes. Our members are generous and smart. They value interdependence and resourcefulness. And we believe that by working together, we can accomplish so much more than when we're working apart. Now, if that sounds like the kind of business support community you've been looking for, we would love to meet you. Get all the details on the What Works Network, including the tools, events, and training that come with your membership by going to explorewhatworks.com slash network. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. When it comes to working our plans and realizing our goals, one of the biggest challenges is isolation. Trying to do it all without the support or input of others is a drag at best and a deal breaker at worst. I'm betting you know exactly how this feels. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely, isolating endeavor. And I bet you also know that your customers and clients feel the same way. They have changes they want to make, things they want to learn how to do, and ideas they want to explore, but it's hard to do it on their own. And that's where Mighty Networks comes in. Mighty Networks makes it easy for you to bring your customers, fans, or clients together so they can experience the support of a community of people working on similar things. And your Mighty Network makes it easy for you to leverage your leadership, expertise, or creativity to support the people who gather with you through online courses and events. Plus, Mighty Networks gives you the tools you need to charge for membership, courses, and even bundles. Find out for yourself by setting up a Mighty Network free of charge. Go to MightyNetworks.com to get started. Okay. So let's go back to 2006. Now you decide to go out on your own. You start Plum Creative. Um, What were those first couple of years like in business for you? So again, being ever the practical Pisces that I am, I decided, okay, so here's my window of opportunity. This feels like the right time to do it. So what do I need to do now? So I decided I'm going to work from my second bedroom in Queens. Now, it should be known that I was a New York City girl through and through. I was like running around town in my little cute shoes and my outfits, my red lipstick and my handbags. And so for me to be like in Queens in my second bedroom was hard. It did not feel good to me at all. I felt really out of the loop. So that was really a a sacrifice and a choice that I made. But but my choice was I'm going to keep my expenses as low as possible and I'm just going to give it a year and see how viable this is as a business. I'm not going to go to the expense. And this is, you know, again, 2006. So you know that building websites at that time was not an easy or cheap endeavor, right? Um, and so I was like, I'm not going to build a website. I'm going to have a business card. I'm going to come up with some kind of a press packet that I can, you know, PDF that I can send to people. I'm going to like get on the phone and I'm just going to do it old school and just pound the pavement and see what business I can bring in. And one of the first ever uh, jobs that I brought in um, for a a copywriter that I worked with was Bloomingdale's. And it was a big project. And um, we were kind of off to the races. And that was literally from me doing a cold call and, you know, trotting in there with portfolios and, you know, pitching what we did. And so the first two years were great. And one of the reasons why I decided to even start the business at that time was, like I say, I had learned so many of the ropes from somebody else and I'm forever grateful for her mentorship and her guidance that said she did business in in a very different way 
than what mm-hmm. I would do. And she was a different person than I was. And I felt like I wanted to build a business that was built around, that reflected my values, that reflected who I was, that reflected my taste level, that reflected how I wanted to show up in a business. And so I was able to do that. And, and it made it really freeing, right, to not be working under the, the within the constraints of, a, of a, another business owner, right, to be their sidekick. To have it be your own thing felt really great. So we were going great. I was making more money than I'd ever made. I was, I felt like financial ease for the first time. And it wasn't like tons of money, but it was, you know, 20 grand more than I'd ever made at the height of working for someone else. And that was in my first year. And so I felt really great about it. And it was fabulous for two years. And then, of course, 2008 recession hit. So um, then the bottom just fell out of my business because, Um, as anyone in the creative, especially the advertising industry knows that creative budgets are the first to get cut in a recession, especially when you represent talent that are $1,500 a day, you know, they're definitely not being hired. So that was what those first two years were like. They were, they were really great. And then they were really bad. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the Great Recession and the opportunities that came out of that. Um, You started to notice that the kinds of people that you worked with needed to do things differently. They needed to manage their careers differently. (laughs) And you started to kind of figure out what that could look like. Can you just kind of talk us through what that process of noticing that shift was like and then how you started to make it part of what you offered in terms of business. Sure. So I was an agent in that capacity. So how that works is you have creative talent on your roster, you get gigs, you find the right person for that project, you manage a project, and you take 20, 25% of the fees you know, for managing the project and being the agent and bringing in the job. So that's that's the business model. And when the recession happened, like I say, the bottom fell out of the business. And when things get hard, my, my go-to place is always, how can I support people? How can I share what I know to help people at least feel better and not hopeless in this moment? And of course, all creatives were, were having a hard time. So creatives were getting laid off from agencies. They were getting laid off from in-house design um, you know, departments. They, if they were freelancers already, you know, their work had disappeared too. So I had like literally all of these creators beating a path to my door because they thought I was an agent, so I must surely have access to some secret pile of jobs. I didn't, but because of my tendency to always sort of go to that support mode, I would literally see anyone who asked. So if you, someone could call me from the corner of, or on a payphone, which is kind of how people were doing things then, and say, <laughs> I need to come and show you my portfolio. Can I do it? And I'd be like, sure. Because I had more time than I had projects at that time. So people would come by and we'd talk and you know, I would start to realize that over, and I would give them like an hour, an hour and a half, because why not, right? And um, I would realize that over that time, there was this, I, I was 
without realizing kind of coaching them. And, and so by the end of it, I would have helped them figure out what their unique gift was. I would have helped them figure out who their ideal client was. I would have reworked their portfolio right there in front of them. I would have given them, because they had actual portfolios, I would um, have given them like three or four or five names of people to call. And I would send them out of the door with at least a, a rudimentary plan, right? Like some clarity and some next steps. And they literally would leave 10 pounds lighter. And I, that was where the shift came. Not that I thought, oh, creatives need to know how, need to market themselves better, but it was more how I could serve creatives. I'm like, okay, I can either work in this business model that I kind of just inherited. It wasn't one that I developed. I inherited it because that's what I knew how to do, where I represent basically this very elite, small roster of talent, maybe like 12 people. And yet there's this whole creative community that thinks that the only way they can make money is by having an agent take them on and take 25% of their fees. And not all agents, I felt like I was an agent that had integrity. Not all agents did, right? Um, or do. And I was like, well, I'm a creative and I learned how to do this. Why don't I just teach people how to do it for themselves? And so, you know, the, the realization of it wasn't as kind of like clear as that. It definitely kind of came in fits and starts. But you know, my feeling is always that when your back is up against the ropes, as mine was in a business, my business literally was not making any money. And mm -hmm. I had to figure something out. And I saw this need, which in the end was an opportunity, right? You see a need in the market, it becomes an opportunity. And then I thought, well, how can I look at what I do differently? And instead of having it be like, well, I do these things for you. Let me turn these things into steps and a curriculum. And let me start seeing if anyone wants me to teach it to them. And I do remember someone who was in like a, a sort of an accountability group at the time. And she said, well, aren't you cannibalizing your own business in doing that? And I'm like, I don't care. I think there's going to be always going to be people who want someone to do it for them. And there's going to be people who are going to want to be empowered to learn it themselves. But I essentially wanted to be able to teach people how to be their own agent if they wanted to. And then if they wanted an agent, it would just be because it was another string to their bow, another person out there with eyes and ears open, not because that was the only stream of you know, well-being and money that flowed to them. So mm -hmm. that's how that happened. And, you know, so for so that's when my my coaching business was was born and it was a very sort of new version of it. And so I had both businesses for about four years as I built up the coaching thing and took on clients and didn't charge a lot of money and just tested it and saw what worked and what didn't work and, you know, built it little by little. Yeah. I really liked the distinction you made between inheriting a business model from a mentor, from an industry, really, um, to reworking things for yourself from the ground up based on a need. And I think that, you know, when you say, well, I've, I, I, realize that I could teach people how to do this for themselves. I think that that today sounds like, well, of course, that's the direction you took. That's the direction you're supposed to take, right? But one, then that wasn't true. And two, there's a today, I think like the inherited business model is often, oh, I'll teach people how to do what I do, which doesn't make it a bad model, but it does mean that you lose out on some of the opportunity that comes from 
figuring something out based on the need and based on how you can show up and serve and finding sort of that overlap between those two things. Um, I don't know if I have a question there, but I just, I was <laughs> just really intrigued by that distinction. Um, and I think it's a really, really important one. So I appreciate you sharing it. Um, actually, I want to shift gears a lot mm -hmm. now um, and talk less about the structure of your business and how that came to be and talk more about sort of your psyche as a business owner. <laughs> um I think of you as someone who is always working on herself in really profound ways. And I'm so inspired by the way that you work on yourself. I know that one of the things that you worked on early on as a business owner was around your money stories. Um, what made you focus on your money mindset and how has that work impacted the way you do business? Sure. Um, that was a big one for sure. And I, I appreciate the compliment. Um, I do work on myself a lot. And I think that that is, whenever something's not working, I always assume I'm at least 50% responsible for it, right? So even if I'm, a, if I'm in a terrible relationship, which I have been, and, you know, the other person is clearly doing some messed up stuff, I'm always just like, well, I'm here. What am I bringing to this, like, you know, dumpster fire? So it's always my MO, which is, what am I bringing to this? Now, around the money mindset piece, it's really interesting. Um, I always thank my lucky stars that my first business, even though it wasn't the one that is like my purpose-driven business, which is what the one I currently have now is, um, it taught me so much. And one of those things was I was re representing top-level talent. And the only reason I was representing top-level talent was the first business I worked in with this woman represented top-level talent. So that was a good inheritance, right? So we would be you know, pitching a project and I would say to the creative, okay, so they want this, they want that. Let's talk about pricing and, and fees. And, and they would say, well, I want $10,000 to write that brand book. And I'd be like, like, you know, how much? You know, I mean, to me, it was astronomical amount of money. You'll make $1,500 a day to write, right? But because I was acting on behalf of these people and I could clearly see their talent and I could see that these people were paying for it, I'm like, well, if I think that's a lot of money and what, what's my, what, what's, what's my hang up around value here and creativity like what what is it about that that makes me sort of like gasp that way and so I learned through doing it for other people and advocating for other people how to um, assign value to something that is as subjective as creativity and so I, I'm forever grateful that I got to cut my teeth on other people's talent which I could appreciate rather than my own talent which is oftentimes yes. harder to see right um, so so that was the first thing. I was being exposed to these big budgets. I was being exposed to these very fabulous people in New York who were fascinating and talented. And, you know, I went to this writer's party and, you know, Michael Cunningham, the author is there and I'm talking to him. Like these are like some, like just such exciting circles to be in. And you start to see the discrepancy of, what your mindset is around money and what other people's are. And so I was rolling in these sort of more, um, and it wasn't even like moneyed circles, but 
like no one had a poverty mindset in these circles and everyone was fabulous and creative and doing great. Right. And it was really weird. I was working in the fashion industry. I was working in New York and there was this tendency to like, you have to look a certain way. So I was overspending, was not saving anything, was not making what I needed to make. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Something is out of whack here. What's missing? And, you know, once I started to even like understand that money mindset was a concept, I kind of like, I, I, I self-help, I love it. Like personal development, like lay it on me. I <laughs> cannot get enough of it. So that just happened to be one of those things I initially sort of like um, started to unearth a little bit. And I would suck. The more I read, the more I heard, I'm like, this is me, this is me, this is me. And I was like, and there's a way that you can with, you can actually like change, like how you engage with money. And, you know, money is one of those things that we bump up against probably hundreds and thousands of times a day, right? It's not something you can't be cool with if you want to have it. So once I started to, you know, even just do a little bit of digging, it was very clear where my scarcity mindset came from. You know, I grew up in a middle class family in the 70s where we had the oil crisis, where there was a recession, where there was inflation issues. I was like, my parents were like, poor middle class for a long time. And I remember them worrying about money. Like, so we always had what we needed, but there was never a penny extra, never, mm -hmm. right? And so that was something I grew up on. And I saw my parents like giving us everything we needed, but like how much of their time and energy and worry went into accounting for every penny. And I'm I think one of my core tenets in like just life and business and how I coach is that everybody has gifts and, and has a purpose and your gifts are how you live your purpose and you create positive impact and how you touch the lives of others and help them transform in whatever ways they need to. And if you're spending even a moment of time worrying about money, that's a moment of time and energy that you're not putting somewhere else in the service of other people in the service of yourself, in the service of your family, advocacy for wherever you should be spending your time or want to be spending your time. If you're even spending one moment worrying about money, that's a wasted moment. And so my belief is also that as a coach, I will never ask someone to do what I won't do myself or haven't done myself. And so the creative community also typically struggles with scarcity mindset issues around money, right? Because they were steeped in stories and, and, and references from culture, from their teachers, from their family, that if you are creative, like you can never make money. It's not, you can't get a real job. Like it's, you, there's something a little bit odd about you. It's frivolous, like whatever it might be, right? So from as probably as early as people can remember, if they're in the creative field, they've been told whether or not they realize how much they internalized it, that that is not a way that you can thrive and that it's not really valuable. And so it, it was really critical for me that I figure out how to get past this and have a tactical proven methodology that I could help other people do the same. Because that to me is probably the biggest obstacle that people have in building a thriving, profitable, creative business is just all these issues around money.
And it doesn't have to be that way. It's not actually even that complicated. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Can you, is there a particular example that comes to mind of a change that you made in your business and your pricing and an offer that you made because you realized there was some sort of scarcity story or um, maybe a lack of confidence around value and how changing that allowed you to make a different decision about that particular component? Sure. Um, so I will say that when I started this business, like I say, it was like a side business and the other first business did kind of like rebound and that was really the primary sort of like, you know, income generator. And I made a, a, a very deliberate choice at the beginning was say, I think I charged like $700 for coaching. It was just enough that they would have to think about writing the check, but not really that much that I, I, I felt like if it's not like amazing, it's not too terrible, right? So I, I, I was really like learning on the job, right? And I was charging just enough for them to show up basically and, and do the work. And, you know, I incrementally raised my rates. And I remember when I went from like, you know, I would go from 700 to 900. And then like, I went from like 900 to 3,600 or something. I just made this big leap because I thought I'm, it, it's okay at the beginning that I did this. It's not okay that I just incrementally inch it up because my expertise and experience is, is exponentially compounding and I am not in the same ballpark as my peers and I need to be. I need to be in the same, the same price range as other people who are different that value. Otherwise, people will not value what I do. They won't. It's not like people will value you less if you undercharge for your services than if you, you know, charge what its value is, right? Which can come with a steep price tag sometimes. So, I would still consider my pricing to be very reasonable for what people get out of it, but it's certainly much more than it was then. So, I would say when I started to see that, like, okay. I feel like I've got enough experience to be able to hold my own in the peer group I want to be in. Now I'm going to make that leap. And it is terrifying, right? You, of course, think that no one's going to buy it, you know, all of these things. And then you sell that first package and you're like, oh, all right, I guess this is the price now. And then you can, you know, you can always make that next jump again. And you know, each time I make a jump in pricing, I feel, I, I always really think about it because I want to make sure that it, mm -hmm. it, it is based upon value um, but that I, I am being fairly compensated for mm -hmm. yeah, the results. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, as we start to wrap up here, I'm curious what opportunities you sort of see on the horizon. Like, is there something that you have your eye on something that's sort of maybe nagging at you a little bit that you're like, oh, I'm going to be thinking about that. Sure. So in my business, you know, I, I always say to people, like, focus on the things that you love to do and, and, and try to make sure you build the business that, that supports you staying in your zone of genius. And the things that I love to do are coaching, writing, and speaking. Like, these are the three things that I love to do. And so I've got my coaching services in such a place now where I feel really good about them. They speak to my target clients, which are established creative business owners who've been in business like five plus years there's components where people can kind of come in at different entry points. They could do group, they can do one-on-one, -on -one, they can do a VIP day, right? There are these different, so it's kind of build your own adventure. So I feel really good about the coaching piece of it. And I have deliberately chosen a high touch 
model because I really like being in it with people. You know, I don't want to build the next B school, right? You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I like being in it with people. Um, the the speaking, I love speaking to people. I love it. I love it. I love it. Like last night, I did a webinar for um, Creative Mornings Field Trips, and just to have people there that are from all over the world, like, so whether it's virtually, whether it's in person, giving presentations, because I'm really good at, again, the Pisces and the Virgo of just like taking ideas and then turning them into like a really well thought out, beautiful presentation. Like I, I, I love doing that. And I love being in community with people and bringing my personality to it. So I'm a bit of a showman really when it comes to that. Um, and being on stage, I love that too. So when we can do that again, so more speaking, whether it's virtually or teaching workshops or that, I would love to do more of because I, I think I'm an ambivert, right? I definitely need my time to go away and think and do my things, but then like put me on a stage or in front of people, and I'll just like you know do my little pony show. Um, and then the other thing that's always sort of like I keep threatening to do it is to write a book, and. That is the thing that kind of keeps nagging at me a little bit. But, you know, the time, I think I know enough about myself now that I, I do see an opportunity and I see when the timing is right. And this may percolate for another few years. I don't know. I've got two really little kids. You know, one of them is home right now. And it's not the time to take a year off and write a book, right? So I will know when the time is right. And I'm sure that there will be a book in me at some point. So Hmm. I love the spaciousness and also the confidence in that answer. It's so good. Uh, Justine, what are you excited about right now? I, I always feel excited. Honestly, it's like, even when things are are bad, I always feel excited because I think I'm always really hopeful. And again, that's that, that optimism piece of, of, of my personality. And I'm excited for us to be moving out of what has been a really, really horrible period in American history. We're still very much in so much of it, but I'm excited that there have been big wins in what I consider to be the right side of history. And I'm excited to see where that can go. I'm excited. I'm always excited for, for, um, how people and businesses evolve. I think that's why I love personal and professional development. I feel like we're all evolving all the time. And if we're willing to be in that place of, you know, seizing opportunities, doing uncomfortable things, putting ourselves in community with, with, um, you know, like-minded people, um, like great things can happen, like miraculous things can happen. So I'm excited for what 2021 and as we emerge from this pandemic, what could be possible? And I'm not Pollyanna about it. I know that it's, you know, there's always going to be a lot of things that are, are just as wrong as they are, right? But I feel excited about being on an upswing. Well, that is just a wonderful answer, Justine. Thank you. And thank you for kind of talking us through how you see opportunity, how you seized opportunity, and how you're continuing to evolve and adapt as a business owner and as a human being. I really appreciate that this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Tara. I love talking to you. Justine brings a thorough thoughtfulness to the way she navigates the crossroads that have come up in her life and business. And before I wrap things up here, I want to come back to a piece of Justine's thought process that I've been thinking about quite a bit in the weeks since this interview. Justine said she starts with the question, how will you feel? 
and then builds the scaffolding for the decision and how she's going to take action on it from there. She uses both her intuitive and practical natures to evaluate her choices and make plans. And you don't have to be a Pisces with a Virgo rising to do that. We all have some mix of intuition and practicality. Most of us have learned to lean on one more than the other. But what would happen if you found an equanimity between these two ways of processing your opportunities? How could you benefit from bringing a more intuitive approach to the way you navigate crossroads? And how could you benefit from a more practical approach? Find out more about Justine Clay at justineclay.com. Next week, we'll have an episode full of more stories of navigating crossroads and pursuing opportunities. And then in April, we're going to be talking all about simplifying. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt. Our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. Get more of What Works delivered to your inbox every Thursday. I share a letter on business building and leadership, plus resources from around the web on building a stronger business in our free newsletter, What Works Weekly. To subscribe, go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly.